Good afternoon, good to see you. I can see that we're a little bit thinner on the ground than my last talk, so maybe G.H. Lang was right with the partial rapture. <laughs> Thank you for uh, asking me to, to look at this. I know you've benefited, but I just spent 12 months just, just immersing myself in this, and I've really, really appreciated it. And sometimes it's good to, to learn your own history, to be honest. The village I live in has just recently, in the last 12 months, opened an exclusive Brethren Assembly. In fact, within seven miles of where my wife and I live, there are three exclusive Brethren Assemblies. I know they're exclusive because they have a notice board on the outside, which is the size of this. You've got to get out of the car and read it. It says, if you are interested in hearing anything that is going to be said in this building, please ring this number. We haven't really been looking at the exclusive, been looking at the open brethren, and there are three kinds of open brethren to me. There are open, open brethren, and then there are tight open brethren, <laughs> and then there's watertight brethren. <laughs> you can always tell these kind of people because when they walk, their shoes squeak, and uh, I had relatives... They're all going to be with the Lord now, but all in different brands of, of open brethrenism. And uh, I had a, an uncle who was part of the family. He, he's now with the Lord, but there was once a big family bust-up in our house, sad to say, over spiritual things. And uh, his parting shot was this. I want to tell you that if the Lord Jesus ever came back to this earth, he'd be meeting with the brethren around the Lord's table. You know, that's how dogmatic people can get. Well... He's since met the Lord, and maybe he's put him right. No, it's not the brethren, it's the Baptists I'd be joining. <laughs> John Ritchie is a brethren uh, publishing company that is based in Scotland, and every ten years they produce a book with the same title, they finish their course. And uh, we're, we're waiting for the fifth one, but we've got another uh, seven, well, a few more years to wait, three more years. Uh, I've got four of them here. They finished their course in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and uh, the beginning of the 21st century. These four books are just the biographies of evangelists who passed away in that decade. And uh, I've read my way through every one of these, and uh, there isn't a hog roast, or a bouncy castle, or a face painter in sight. <laughs> These, these were men who just lived solely for talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to get hold of these, uh, you won't be blessed by everyone. I think I'm not all that sure about that. I don't know the man. I knew some of these characters. But I don't know of any denomination in our country that could produce a book like this every ten years of evangelists who've gone to be with the Lord during the last ten years. I could produce a book every year entitled Clowns I Have Met. It's alright, Vinny, you're not yet dead. And it just shows us the kind of uh, principles by which brethrenism has, has run over the years. And uh, I, I think those are very, very encouraging indeed. There's also another book on the uh, display there to do with Irish evangelists. It's a book of 109 Irish evangelists. And again, that could be multiplied over and over again. And what I'm trying to say is that these people have always been passionate about preaching the gospel. Initially, they were evangelical 
evangelistic, no. But when the second generation came along and people started to be born again by the Spirit of God and added to their number, it's as if they found their feet and became incredibly evangelistic. And right throughout their history, that is what they have been. And it was the brethren who gave us the gospel halls. And we sometimes say about a product, well, it, it does what it says on the label. Gospel hall. And uh, only yesterday I was just driving down the road, I had a little window between, between lectures and fire and myself went down to the village to go and look at a, a grave and as we're driving down there we passed a gospel hall in the middle of an estate with a huge text outside and saying that preaching the gospel will take place here. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a, a pastor, I've been preaching for 32 years and, and it's a, a challenge to me. You can go through many evangelical churches in our country today and sit there for weeks and not hear a clear exposition of the gospel. Tell me the old, old story for I forget so soon. And I believe that the gospel is not only for sinners, but also it's for God's people. To remind them what they've been saved from, to fire them up, to then go out and to preach the gospel. And if you're a pastor here, if you're a preacher, do not be ashamed of preaching the gospel to God's people. It is important to be reminded of what we have been saved from and what a wonderful saviour we have. And I would say that first and foremost, men like George Muller and Henry Craig were evangelists. We often think of George Muller as an evangelical entrepreneur, but, uh, well, he was an entrepreneur, he was a great thinker, but first and foremost, Muller was an evangelist. So when he arrived in Bristol with his friend Henry Craig, the pair of them realised that if we're going to do anything, let's not build on someone else's foundation. There's so much baggage, you know that, when you start building on other people's foundation, there's baggage. And so they met together, Henry Craig, George Muller, another man and four women, and they just began to pray and then to speak God's word. And gradually numbers grew. And, and as the numbers grew, this is how it worked. George Muller would preach in the morning and Henry Craig in the evening. And then after a month he'd swap over. And so it would be Craig in the morning and Muller in the evening. After 18 months, they had 60 conversions. People felt confident. Would you like to come along and just find out about the Lord Jesus Christ? And so suddenly the church began to grow. And uh, this was during the, uh, the cholera epidemic, which sometimes does help. I'm not saying that we should start praying for cholera. But Henry Craig said the bell was always tolling in Bristol. And that someone could be well in the morning and by the end of the day they were dead with cholera. It was so rampant. And, and Muller and Craig in that environment went in as evangelists at great personal risk preaching the gospel and offering people the gospel in a life and death situation certainly makes people think the trouble is and I, I do not wish hardship on us but life is so easy for us isn't it really not for everybody but generally life is so easy and I wondered whether during the economic kind of upheaval it would make some people think seriously about hang on a minute there's more to life than money and prosperity is there something else but it, it almost seems that a callous has come over our hearts and we're back into the old general routine. By 1870, 28 years later, Bethesda Chapel, Bristol, which had been founded by Muller and Craig, had a thousand members breaking bread around the Lord's table. And over half of those, to what we know, had been led to the Lord by people in the church. And so first and foremost, people like Muller and Craig were evangelists. Charles Haddon Spurgeon greatly valued the preaching of Muller 
and used to have him preach at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and Muller and, and Spurgeon did not suffer fools gladly and uh, I suppose Muller picked up on the, the back end of the, the Moody and Sankey campaign as well Muller was also a child evangelist mean cholera took so many parents away you say what were all these orphans doing here like as a boy I could never understand why everyone in Capernaum was sick <laughs> I mean every time I read that everyone was sick in Capernaum and then I understood why everyone was sick in Capernaum okay not sick obviously but sick in the place so I thought to myself why are there all these orphans in Bristol and then it kind of dawned on me well yes because the cholera ep epidemic was so virulent in Bristol and took out hundreds and hundreds of people many children were left without parents who's going to look after them mother said well let's look after them and use this as a door to show them the Lord Jesus Christ and every child who stopped in his orphanage 10,000 in total was always offered the Lord Jesus Christ so he fed them he clothed them he tried to find a job for them and when they left he gave them the word of God which they'd had all the time that they were in there down in places like Devon and Cornwall, what, what Muller was doing, not in terms of building orphanages, but, but reaching out to people in need, is what other people were doing. Uh, and initially, Brethren, Brethrenism was in Devon and Cornwall, came up to Bristol, up to Hereford, and it kind of began to spread throughout the country, just as primitive Methodism followed the, the flowing of the River Trent. And, and the Bible Christians also were down in Devon and Cornwall. So, so down in Barnstable, there was a man called Robert Chapman and you can see his, uh, his picture on there in fact there's a photograph that I got from the, uh, the archives of Robert Chapman preaching in 1890 as an old, old man he was born in 1803 and died in 1902 so he just missed out on, on reaching his centenary he was such a well-known man that on one occasion he received a letter a letter arrived in this country from abroad which said Robert Chapman University of Love, England. And he was so well known throughout the country that that letter went all the way from London down to Barnstable and arrived through his letterbox. Mr. Spurgeon was a great uh, admirer of him. He said, Robert Chapman is the saintliest man I've ever met. And, and J.N. Darby, like John Wesley, could fall out with his shadow. Darby... Darby said of Robert Chapman because they'd also fallen out over theological issues he said most of us talk about the heavenless but this man actually lives in them now, now Chapman was a lawyer in London on a very good wage and uh, through a strange set of circumstances he was called to pastor a strict and particular Baptist chapel in Barnstable he said yes I will come on one condition that you allow me to preach the whole word of God. I'm not here to preach a party line, I will just expound scripture. Within a short period of time, he, he turned the church almost into a brethren assembly, and he was a brethren evangelist. And, and he was a soul winner. He was a soul winner. He had a sidekick in a man called William Hake, who was uh, seven years older than him. And uh, Hake died at 95 but he was still doing door to door at 95 and, and can you picture this Robert Chapman at 88 and William Hake at 95 going around the villages of Devon and Cornwall knocking on doors and saying as polite old gentlemen 
can we just have a few minutes of your time to talk about a man who's changed our lives I mean, sweet evangelist so the idea that you've got to be young and you know the idea is that a youth worker's got to be bouncing on a bed spring you know, <laughs> full of energy and Jesus is dynamic I think it's wonderful that men in their 80s were doing door to door evangelism and who's going to shut the door on two old men and so Robert Chapman and, uh, and William Hick passionate brethren evangelists but doing it in a very very gentle way also down there was a man called Robert Gribble and just to show you the kind of people who made up the brethren Robert Gribble wasn't really an educated man he could read just about but in 1815 he was, he was awakened and, and came to faith in Christ and, and had a new birth and what he discovered he wanted others to discover and so he thought right I'm going to start with young people but he was so effective in reaching young people that their parents said could you do something for us and in a short period of time Robert Gribble a uh, very ordinary man uh, was, was speaking to over 300 people about the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, if you go around that area you'll still find chapels that he, he had built as preaching centres to get the gospel out and there's a great bit of dialogue that comes out from the writings uh, of Plymouth Brethrenism where J.N. Darby, this you know, Dublin barrister was talking to George Wigram one of the greatest Greek Hebrew scholars in the land, both brethren and they were discussing Gribble here's what Darby said how is it Wigram and that's how they spoke those days how is it Wigram <laughs> that we preach to the best of our ability with all our knowledge and education at our back yet we seldom get a conversion while down in Devonshire there's a man called Gribble who cannot preach he just rubs his hands up and down his face, mutters a few texts so that one can scarcely hear what he's saying. And after a few minutes of this, people are weeping over their sins and desiring salvation. Makes you sick, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so here's this man who's not a really educated man, not a great reader. And by the way, in the early days, he couldn't, he couldn't think of sermons. So he used to read other people's sermons. So here's this ill-educated man, poorly kind of having a go at other people's sins, but he's passionate about reaching lost people, and God blesses him. And so all around that area at uh, Eastercombe Chapel, that's where he's buried, you'll find little chapels that he put up as, as, as preaching places. He was known as the Fustian Jacket Evangelist because he always wore a Fustian jacket. You say, what's a Fustian jacket? Ask Mr. Google. Type it in, you'll see what a Fustian jacket looks like. Another man in that area who I found deeply moving was a man called George Brealy. I, I heard of him, so got in contact with the Evangelical Library in London. Uh, been a member of that for 30 odd years. They sent me his biography down, hadn't been read for decades. George Brealy was uh, a brethren who felt called to go to the West Indies with his wife to be, to be missionaries together. While they were waiting for the, the green light, to uh, get all their papers to go out to the West Indies he thought well while we're around here in the Black Hills let's do some evangelising as he began to knock on doors and talk to people about the Lord Jesus he found number one most people were ill educated they couldn't read they'd never seen the Bible and furthermore a good number of people had never even thought about God he said to his wife why are we going to the West Indies 
these people are totally lost. Who's going to tell them? He never ever went out to the West Indies. And he's now known as George Brealey of the Black Hills. And uh, I just say this as an aside. I just recently, before I came here, found out he's also buried in that same cemetery in, in, in Western Supermere. It's God's Acre. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Plymouth in Western. Where, I mean, reading his biography, it's, it was so interesting. And, and I could give you story after story from the life of this man just going around speaking to people who didn't even know of God. Where do you start? And by the way, we're almost in that kind of situation these days, where there's no God framework in people's lives. So people have got no knowledge of God. If there's no knowledge of God, is there any knowledge of sin? Fascinating. Well, it's interesting to read what he actually did. And the supernatural was involved. You know, we hear these days that of, of Muslims having theophanies and, and God breaking in supernaturally, as if where there's nothing at all, God breaks in. And, and as you read his book, this man began to move in the supernatural. Not in ways that we go, hang on a minute, you know, I've seen, I've seen a bike chain swimming through a tank of jellyfish. <laughs> Who's got an interpretation? <laughs> Thus says the Lord, buy a new chain. <laughs> no. On one occasion, he was, he was evangelizing in the Devon area, and, and he went into a compound. You sometimes see these compounds over in Europe where you, you kind of go in, and all houses are around a courtyard. He was in there, and he felt greatly exercised to open his Bible and to shout at the top of his voice, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So he shouted it out. He'd no sooner finished when a man on the top floor threw open a window and shouted out, Thank God for that. He said, Stay there. The man ran down. He came down. He was 80 years of age. He said to George Brealey, It's amazing what you just shouted out. Why is that, said George? He said, Well, I've been in and out of prison most of my life. He said, I, I've been addicted to drink. But at the age of 60, when I came out of prison, I took the pledge never to touch another drop, and I've never touched another drop since. He said, last night I was led in bed, asleep. And as I was asleep, I heard a voice shout in my ear, Christ has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He said, I hadn't a clue what that meant, because it kept ringing in my ears. So he said, I got up. And he produced a board, a slate board, he said, and I wrote it down word for word, and here's the text. And he said, as you shouted it, I knew in my heart he had died for my sins. Wow. Now, I, I can cope quite happily with that supernatural intervention, where God moves powerfully, not just to make us feel comfortable in the church, but oh, isn't that great, God has spoken. But God has spoken to bring people out of darkness into the light. Some, I say this carefully, some cessationists wouldn't cope with that. But that's God breaking it. God is supernatural. If God is not supernatural, then what is he? And so here's a God, supernatural God. And how, how we would long for that as evangelists where, you know, we preach the gospel and a non-Christian came and said, by the way, I had that in my head last night. What does it mean? Well, God is working. Very, very powerful indeed. Uh, I, I think of a hymn by A.T. Pearson. I, I love singing hymns and I like modern stuff as well. With harps and with vials. Oh, I love that. I love a good harp and a vial, do you? <laughs> with harps and with vials, 
there stands a great throng in the presence of Jesus and sing this great song. He makes now the rebel. I love that. A priest and a king. Why did Jesus die on the cross? That we rebels may be priests and kings in his sight. Uh, and here's, you know, here's Mr. Hake. Here's Mr. Chapman. Here's Mr. Gribble. Here's George Brealey. Some are educated. Some are lawyers. Some are gifted in, lang in languages. Some are ill-educated. But all of them are inspired by the gospel to say, Lord, be it the Black Hills, be it Bristol, be it Bath, be it Devon, be it Western Supermare, I'm here. Use me to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. I think primarily there were two kinds of uh, evangelists that the brethren had. What you may call ordinary people. And then people who were extraordinary that I would call gentlemen evangelists that you would never think would be evangelists. I mentioned in my talk about Captain Percy Hall how uh, he, he became a believer. And by the way, as well as having this fascination with, with initials, CHM, FFB, HAI, DSE, uh, they also had a fascination with military titles. And so it's General Ord Dobie and uh, Captain Reginald Wallace. Yes, and Captain Shep. The brother had a fascination with, uh, with military titles. I'll come back to that a little later on because uh, they were split right down the middle over whether war is right or whether it's wrong. When they thought it was right, then they went into it hook, line and sinker. When they thought it was wrong, they really stood back. And during World War I, I've just nearly finished a book. Uh, I was trying to read widely. My principle is... If it's good, you can include it in your sermon. If it's bad, preach against it. You know, so read, read widely. And uh, I just nearly finished a book on conscientious objectors. Most interesting to read. And during World War I, the largest group of conscientious objectors were the Quakers, and the second largest group were the Plymouth Brethren. So isn't it interesting that here are these conscientious objectors sitting under Captain Sharrett. Yes? And... Uh, Captain Reginald Wallace and Captain Percy Hall. He's a captain in, uh, in the Royal Navy. He, uh, he, he rises incredibly high in the Royal Navy. It's pretty embarrassing really because his father is the Dean of Durham Cathedral. As he's rising through the ranks of the Royal Navy, he bumps into people like Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce. He becomes aware of the Gospel and, and amazingly he gets saved. Now, I've never been in this situation, but imagine being the son of the Dean of Durham Cathedral. And uh, you say to your father, I've just become a Christian, and I've just got baptised. He goes, son, you've always been a Christian. We baptised you. How dare you do that? No, dad, I wasn't a Christian. What does that say about his father? <coughs> kind of the friction, the tension. So here's this captain who gets converted, he gets baptised. And he throws his lot in with the Plymouth Brethren and becomes an open-air evangelist. So one minute you're the captain of a ship in the British Navy and, and the next minute you say, I think God is calling me to go and tell people about the Lord Jesus. We have an excerpt from the Plymouth Evening Paper describing Captain Percy Hall going to a race horse meeting at a race course doing some evangelizing. Here it is. We sincerely regret 
to witness a person of Captain Percy Hall's rank in society so demean himself and disgrace the character of a Christian and a gentleman which was presumed he wishes to be considered. Whatever he or those supporters, uh, whatever the, he or these who support him may imagine, he may be assured that his conduct tends to injure the cause of religion, and by turning things sacred into ridicule, to destroy the moral obligations of society, his blind and outrageous zeal has doubtless overcome his judgment. His friends, therefore, should take proper care of him. So here's this captain in the Royal Navy preaching at a race meeting saying to these people, you need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Had he lost his mind? Nothing of the sort. He was passionate about Jesus. And by the way, down in the Plymouth area, the Brethren Assembly opened a drop-in centre where they served tea and cocoa and rolls and butter at cost price so that people could come in and have a warm drink, something to eat and there were people sitting around to talk about the Lord Jesus and that's just about 160 170 years ago so people were doing it then what is interesting just is the politics every church has politics you know, if you don't want politics ask the Lord to take you home because there will be no politics in heaven but wherever you go there's politics there's politics in a marriage and in a family and in a church it just so happens that Captain Percy Hall bought into the any moment now rapture teaching. Whereas the bulk of the people in the Plymouth Brethren Assembly down in Plymouth didn't buy into that. He was a very gifted man, so whenever he preached, if he preached in the morning and just hinted at the rapture, they always made sure the evening speaker was a non-rapture man to put the congregation right. <laughs> and it was kind of this two even throwing between it's rapture in the morning, no it's rapture in the evening. But... Uh, I just mentioned him, I could mention many more. These people who were just so enthused about the gospel, they were not ashamed to go onto a race course and talk about the Lord Jesus. Let me just tell you what was just generally going on around the country. In Wales, we know that the first Brethren Assembly opened in 1852 in Cardiff. The, uh, the Brethren never really did well in North Wales, whether it's because they couldn't grapple with the Welsh language. I really don't know, but you don't find many Brethren Assemblies in North Wales. But South Wales became the heartland of, of, of Brethrenism there within the Principality. Uh, when the 1859 revival came, it had a big impact, as we know, on Wales and on Scotland and on, on Northern Ireland. And its wake left behind lots of converts, about a million it's been estimated, a number of those filtered into Brethren Assemblies. But you know something? When you read through the literature and the history of the Brethren, you find very few references to revival. It's as if they almost passed them by. Certainly true in relation to the 1904 revival. Uh, in six months, in 1904-1905, a hundred thousand people were born again by the Spirit of God and came into the church through that revival. I have struggled to find any historical evidence of one Brethren Assembly being born out of the 1904 revival. Why is that? They couldn't understand why they, the keepers of orthodoxy, because that's what they saw themselves as, having come out of all these denominations, why hasn't this come to us? And they couldn't understand why God was blessing Presbyterians 
to be honest, I can't understand it still. <laughs> but they couldn't understand why God was blessing the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists when those denominations were defiled. Lord, why are you pouring your spirit out on them when we are those who try to guard the truth of your word and we're passionate about evangelism? Now, I may be wrong, and maybe there is one or two assemblies that have cropped up as a result of that, but I haven't yet found any evidence. When it did get established, it became very strong in the Cardiff area, and in 1924, nearly 100 years ago, all the Brethren Assemblies in Cardiff clubbed together and they bought a tent or a marquee. It was called the Canvas Cathedral. It seated 2,300 and, and on a regular basis would move this huge marquee all around Cardiff to evangelise and tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Scotland? John Wesley could never make an impression with the Scots. Methodism is incredibly weak in Scotland. And, and even though Wesley went there many times, they just didn't warm to the man. I don't know why, but they didn't warm to him. The brethren arrived there and in the first 30 years that they were there, they only managed to plant 10 assemblies. Kind of uh, hard work. And then, then came the 1859 revival. It's almost as if suddenly the, the blue paper was lit and the whole thing went up. In the next 30 years, after the 1859 revival, remember, the first 30, 10 assemblies, in the next 30, they planted two hundred and sixty assemblies. That's an awful lot. Men like Rice Hopkins and J. A. Boswell and, and Donald Ross. Donald Ross was a, a powerful Scottish evangelist who threw his lot in with the brethren. He worked a lot with a man called uh, Matheson, David Matheson. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was a very powerful Scottish uh, evangelist. He finished his days in Scone or Scone, depends however you see things. And uh, reading, reading the biography of, uh, of David Matheson, I found it on a second-hand uh, bookshelf and purchased an interesting read, reading about Donald Ross. These two missions together, I was reading on one occasion that they took a mission up in the Murray part of Scotland, up around uh, Bucky, you know, all around there. And uh, on one occasion at the end of their mission, they said that 500 people had come forward to receive counselling, talk and to ask how can I get right with God without any doubt at all the spirit of God was moving in a most powerful way a man called J.J. Sims was a, a Canadian brethren who was invited over by the assemblies in Scotland to, to hold a mission he in 1893 filled St. Andrew's Hall in Glasgow the largest hall in Glasgow at the time with 4,000 people week after week after week just preaching the gospel in, in a whole variety of ways but leading people always to the cross as a young boy I always remember we used to have lots of conferences and, and the hallmark of a good conference was when the lineup was all from Scotland you knew you were getting card carrying brethren you know, tight very tight as for Northern Ireland I could stop here and give you an hour's lecture on what was going on in Northern Ireland. God was moving powerfully in, in Northern Ireland. If you've ever been there preaching or just gone around the country, you'd have seen gospel halls everywhere. It really took off in Northern Ireland. And uh, one of their evangelists was called James Campbell. 
James Campbell from 1878 to 1891 planted 40 new assemblies. And I appreciate the spirit was moving, we can't deny that. You kind of get your calculator out, that means three a year. So he would only stay in a place you know, until an assembly was formed. He'd carry on preaching until there was enough fruit to form an assembly. Then he would move on and do the next. Wow. And you have this whole idea of, well, hang on a minute. If a man's just come to faith in Christ, who's going to be the elders? Because all the elders would be young converts. And yet these people very, very quickly matured in the things of God. As for Southern Ireland... I mean, we sometimes think that Southern Ireland was totally Catholic. No, the brethren came out of Dublin. There's also the Church of Ireland in Southern Ireland. And in Dublin itself, the picture is on the wall there now, sadly it's a hotel. The work grew so quickly that they built themselves an assembly on the shape and the size of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It was called Merrion Hall. And on one of my visits to Northern Ireland, I stopped with a gentleman who said, just, just in passing, he said, oh, by the way, my parents were in fellowship in the Marion Hall in the 1940s. And he said, it was full. It was full. And it was so built that you didn't need a microphone, that as they gathered around the Lord's table on a Sunday morning, whoever stood up to speak could be heard anywhere in the whole building. Today, it's a hotel. And when I was there, back in October, I uh, was asking around, could, could you please tell me, was this hotel a church? Was it a brethren assembly? I have no idea, he said. How quickly things disappear. And great kind of brethren preachers used to go there. Henry Grattan Guinness, George Muller, Richard Weaver, Thomas Bernardo, Henry Moorehouse, Denham Smith. Now what about England? What about England? What I've done, I mean, what do you say about England? I've just quickly run through the alphabet, not every letter, and uh, so it's not kind of 26 points, just thank the Lord it's not Chinese. But uh, I've just gone through the alphabet just to say, this is what they did to try and reach out to people. So this idea again, just, you know, old men, old ladies with buns and hats on their heads. That's the ladies, by the way. And uh, just sort of sitting around the Lord's table doing nothing is, is, a, is a bit of a myth. Okay. Number one, uh, articles. The witness in 1920 increased its size. They said, we need to start putting more about mission in our magazines. And they said, if you're running a mission or assembly, write to us, tell us about it, tell us who your evangelist is, tell us your strategy, tell us what you've been doing, and tell us about souls and converts and baptisms. So that people may read that and go, well, we can do that. And the idea is, the more you talk about mission, the more people will say, we want to do that, or people will say to their elders, why are we not doing that? And so here we are, a hundred years ago, the brethren were saying, let's make our magazines bigger, because we need to talk about mission and getting the gospel out. Bible colleges? What is interesting, the brethren really had no Bible colleges. The idea is that you, uh, you train you know, in the assembly, and if we see you've got gifting, we'll send you out. If you haven't got gifting, you're not going anywhere. And what is interesting, I mean, there were so many people I left out yesterday that I wanted to speak to you about, and, and time got the better of me. E.H. Broadbent, who wrote a wonderful book on the Pilgrim Church, 
he, he concluded, after a life of evangelism all over the world, he said, I am quite convinced that taking someone from a church and putting them in a Bible college is totally unbiblical. And furthermore, when they come back from college, they have views and ideas that are bigger than their station in life. And who hasn't seen that? It sometimes can happen to ministers who go on sabbaticals for three months. They get these super ideas having been removed from the local <coughs> church. And, and so the brethren were not big on Bible colleges. They were big on being a full-time missionary and a full-time evangelist. But they were not big on being a full-time expounder of God's word. So when I, as a young man, felt greatly called of God... Uh, take too long to say but I felt distinctly called of God to preach the Bible from Genesis right through to Revelation I'm on book 47 so still got another 19 to go when I shared this I was met with a blank wall oh if I said I feel called to be an evangelist and I do a bit of Bible study on the side well that's great, David's got a call but because I was called to be a Bible teacher no, and so I didn't get one single penny from the assembly where I was brought up. Never was I invited back to even speak. And by the way, just in December, they closed. The nearest the brethren ever came to having a Bible college was Morgan's Bible College, where D.L. Clifford felt, hang on a minute, we've got to start training the evangelists, we've got to start equipping them in a better manner. And we've all heard of uh, Morgan's Bible College. That's how it came. It came out of a need to train brethren evangelists and send them out better equipped for the world. See, children. The brethren were big on reaching children. I can still remember now at the age of six going to a big mission that our assembly put on. The place was packed out. There were banners. It was very, very colourful. And I can still remember the song. Who'll be the next? Who'll be the next? Who'll be the next to follow Jesus? Anyone know that one? because you weren't there but I know it yeah. but they were passionate about who would be the next to follow it and they were preaching for souls even for young people cinemas while the brethren were not great lovers of the pictures they used to hire cinema halls said okay why should the devil have all the best stuff we're going to the cinemas and on a Sunday evening the brethren and sometimes on Saturday evenings would hire cinemas to go and communicate the gospel and to get out into the world Concern? They had a great concern. I come from Blackburn, just up the road from us is Bolton. In 1919, the assemblies in Bolton got together and said, we need to reach out to people. How can we reach out? So they said, we're going to have a day where we're going to call the men of the assemblies to prayer and to seek God and then to talk about how can we reach people in Bolton with the gospel. Okay, Saturday. How many men turned up? 500 men to pray and to seek God that he may do something fresh in Bowdoin. These people had a heart for evangelism. Fishermen, the national mission to the deep sea fishermen, which you've all heard of, was started by a brethren, a man called Ebenezer Mather. What a name that is. I'm sure he walked out of one of Dickens' books. Here's Ebenezer Mather who had a passion. So he started a mission. And then I mentioned gospel halls. The expression Gospel Hall did not come into being until after 1859. 
And if you mention Gospel Hall, then you think of the brethren. And they said, we need to put mission halls all over the place, where at least we can proclaim the Gospel, and if not proclaim it, bring, bring, bring people along who can understand what the Gospel is. And so, you know, most of us probably are well aware of Gospel Hall. Sadly, most of them have now gone. And very quickly, very quickly, became empty pools in which people began to fish. And I remember starting my preaching days at the age of 16 in Rishton Gospel Hall. And, uh, you know, I, I was told, preach the Gospel, brother. We just don't know who may come in. Nobody came in. Uh, and the idea is, well, there we are, we've done our bit, we've preached the gospel. No. When it comes to preaching, it isn't just a matter of, of uh, getting it off you. It's getting it onto people. And if they haven't heard, then really haven't communicated. And we've got to go where, where people need to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. They also had gospel coins. I thought this was quite uh, clever, really. They realised that if you gave people tracks, they threw them on the ground or they ripped them up. So they used to mint gospel coins. And they would put the scripture on both sides of the coin. So you can't burn them. And if you throw them away, oh, someone will pick it up and go, oh, some money. <laughs> and as they pick it up, they'll read the gospel. And the idea is, these last a lot longer than tracks. Which I thought was quite interesting indeed. As for their influence, we're up to the letter I, as for their influence, they, they had a massive influence all around we, we heard about counties, uh, you know, evangelism. Well, that was born out of the brethren. This idea that, you know, we, we want to reach out among the counties primarily. It started in the Plymouth, Devon, Cornwall area. And they had gospel carts and vans and horse-drawn carriages. Kind of, we've got to get the gospel out. We've got to get the gospel out. And how encouraging that counties are here at this convention passing on the gospel. All these years, we've got to get the gospel out. Also things like CSSM. Scripture Union, all heavily influenced by the Brethren. The Christian Medical Fellowship was founded by Melville Capper, who was a Brethren gynecologist. F.F. F. Bruce and W.J. Martin were both Brethren involved in the setting of the Tyndale Fellowship. London Bible College had massive input from John Lang. We could go on that they had this influence growing all over the place. I mentioned military. They were great supporters of Sazra. It's interesting. The Brethren were not keen on organisations that weren't their own. But amazingly, you know, there were certain organisations that just fixed onto, and I was brought up with Sazra, and it's a thrill to see Sazra here. And Sazra has been kept on its feet, I think, by brethren support. If you've read Don Stevens' latest book, War and Faith, he explains how the Gospel Hall in Clatterbridge during World War II used to put on, uh, at Bevington, Bevington Gospel Hall, used to put on teas for prisoners of war. And, and these prisoners of war could come out of their camp on a Sunday to a brethren place to have tea and cake and to hear the gospel. And that shows great uh, you know, ingenuity. And, and on one occasion, 80 prisoners turned up. But wouldn't you if you're in the prison camp? <laughs> oh, for a nice brethren cake and a cup of tea. <laughs> and one of them, Horst Alexander, he said, I heard the gospel and I got saved. Read it, don't Stephen. War and faith. Tracks. They were big track distributors. And uh, Emily Goss, uh, I just got her life story on there. Emily Goss was a brethren lady. Her husband was, was high up in the world of science in this country. They had a very notorious son 
who greatly slandered the brethren. But even when she was dying of breast cancer, she was still writing tracts. I've got to get the gospel out. I've got to get the gospel out. And John Ritchie, the publishers who published these books, they finished their course. They started the Tract Distrib Distrib Distribution Society. And uh, they had 250 of them all around the UK. And every Saturday, these 250 bands would take a big pile of tracts and say, let's go through every village and every town in our country letting people know about the Lord Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? These days, you know, the only thing that we could do on a Saturday is perhaps get people out to a Stuart Town then concert. But in those days, I don't know, it's not us being entertained. It's us saying, right, we've heard the joyful news. And wouldn't it be interesting if every church in this country said, one month a year, we'll use those four Saturdays to go to four villages or to four hamlets or to four areas that we know there's no gospel witness and at least if we just put a track through every letterbox to let people know that Jesus is still alive. What would that do for our country? But no, we don't do those things. It's all inward looking. These people are outward looking. Now I could talk about lots of interesting people and I'm just going to do that in just mention three or four people and then we're going to come to well why have they collapsed? If they were so good, if they were so brilliant, then, then why have they collapsed? Well, let me just mention a man called James Fagan. James Fagan, he, uh, he died in 1925. He lived in Gouldhurst in Kent. He saw that there were many orphans around who had no one to look after them. And, and they were just going to become troublemakers and finish up in prison. And so he, he bought some land and he bought a farm. And he got government permission to bring these boys from London to the farm to teach them a skill and to educate them in the things of God. One man who lived in the next village was so impressed by what this man was doing that he used to support him on a monthly basis. You say, who was the man who supported him? You may have heard of him, I don't know. It's a chap called Charles Darwin. <laughs> Charles Darwin wrote, You have done more for the village in a few months than all our efforts for many years. We have never been able to reclaim a drunkard, but through your services... I do not know that there's a drunkard left in the village. And so while Darwin was alive, he supported a brethren work of, of looking after young lads on a farm. And he said, well, I'm not that sure. Hang on a minute. You read the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh paid for the upbringing of a deliverer who was going to bring the end of them. When God's in it, he picks up the bill. When we do it, we pick up the bill. And so here's James Fagan, and uh, fascinating. He said, oh, by the way, he said, I knew Darwin, and all this talk that he recanted at the end of his life, he said, it is a myth. He died an agnostic. Fascinating. And then there was uh, John McVicker. How about this? John McVicker was a Presbyterian minister in Northern Ireland, and the 1859 revival came. And it must be awful, because I've not been in that situation of being a minister and suddenly realizing you're not converted. That must be so embarrassing. So he's in this revival and people are getting converted. So he and his wife in public got down on their knees and this is what he prayed. He said later, I prayed, Lord, if we're already Christians, make us sure of it. But if not, Lord, make us Christians tonight. The day after was the meeting of the Presbyterian Synod in Belfast. 
he was so convicted of what had happened to him and that he'd never seen this all the time he'd been in the Presbyterian church he resigned on the spot and said I no longer want to be a Presbyterian minister and he threw his lot in with the Plymouth Brethren Jeremiah Manili big in the 1859 revival he baptised him and then he, he spent the rest of his life in London as an evangelist for the brethren Henry Moorhouse Henry Moorhouse heard D.L. Moody preach uh, and said to Mr. Moody if I ever come to Chicago can I preach for you Moody said yes thinking this guy will never come he got on a boat and went to Chicago and turned up and said I'm, I'm the man you said could preach for you Moody and his elders said you do not let that man into the pulpit his wife said Dwight you promised him surely you're a man of your word aren't you he said ok I'll let him preach but I'm away tonight so Henry Moorhouse this, this Plymouth brethren 27 year old evangelist got into the pulpit and preached on John 3.16 when he came back in the evening Moody said what was it like she said he was brilliant in fact to be honest Dwight he preached better than you <laughs> so so he then was given another night and, and Henry Moorhouse preached for seven nights consecutively on John 3.16 and Moody said it was this evangelist which gave him a change of emphasis in his preaching and he focused more on the love of God what is interesting a lot of people don't know what happened next Moody was so taken by this that he booked the boy in to preach for another week in Farwell Hall in Chicago and he advertised British boy preacher John 3.16 and the whole thing was an absolute flop and Moody took the blame he said I put my trust in men instead of God how interesting I could talk about John Morley Peter Brandon, Stan Ford, Eric Hutchins Hedley Murphy, Dick Saunders in relation to Billy Graham the brethren weren't too impressed this is what they wrote they said that the percentage of converts under Billy Graham was around 2.5% and they said to be honest as we've analysed the figures of our evangelists all around the country over a year it's around 2.5% so he has done nothing more than our men do week after week having said that at Haringey 28% of the councils at Haringey were Plymouth Brethren and when deal, and when uh, at the Kelvin Hall in Glasgow 30% were Plymouth Brethren in fact it was Louis Ford a Plymouth Brethren for Tunbridge Wells who really was the catalyst to get Billy Graham to come over in the first place so this is kind of love-hate ok we've said enough how can I wrap it up I would say personally, and these are all my personal conclusions, I know that historically at this very moment brethrenism is growing in other parts of the world. I only read a paper just a few weeks ago which confirmed all this. But I would say in the United Kingdom brethrenism is a spent force. That doesn't mean that there's not the odd assembly here and there that is booking the trend but a true brethren assembly as laid out according to the principles of brethrenism they're very hard to find they have now become evangelical churches or have been swallowed up by other denominations therefore what has happened that this great move of God suddenly collapses 
And I think of myself in Lancashire, you know, I could go through all the towns, you know, right through from Briarfield, right through to Blackpool, gone, gone, gone. My assembly, gone, that's gone. Where'd they all go? And it's quite strange for me, if I'm being very honest with you, I was only sharing this with someone the other day, having been away from Lancashire for 30 years, and I now come back to be a pastor, it's quite surreal for me, because my parents are now dead, so my family's gone. And the spiritual world in which I was brought up in has all died. And I, I sometimes sit there in Lancashire thinking, it's like a dream. My parents have gone. All the spiritual background that it's all gone I'm thinking did I imagine all this it's quite weird so why why has it happened I think there are five reasons and then I'll close with these number one brethrenism has been undone by other denominations there are three things that mark out the Plymouth brethren number one they were mildly Calvinistic they were not full card carrying members of the Tulip Club but they did have a whiff of the bulb fields about them <laughs> and uh, if you read the writings of, of the early brethren they were mildly Calvinistic what they were I would say on top of that is that they were committed to the exposition of God's word for credit to them secondly the true brethren in the early days were mildly charismatic. I don't mean that they're seeing signs and visions as we understand charismatic today. No, they expected God to supernaturally break in. In conversion and, and to clear the way and to do incredible things. In fact, I would say if anyone is a real Bible-believing Christian, surely it should be said of all of us we're mildly charismatic. We expect you know, salvation. If salvation is not supernatural, then what is it? It's a formula. So there were men who were open for God to break in. And their early meetings were certainly far freer than our hymn, prayer, hymn sandwich, or chorus, 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 sermon sandwich. Thirdly, they were incredibly evangelistic. So here's this unique combination of men who were committed to doctrine, committed to the exhibition of scripture who, who were open to the Holy Spirit to break in to see souls being saved and, and who were passionate about souls but things began to change take for example just at the beginning of the 20th century you have men like Poole Connor Campbell Morgan then came Lloyd Jones and it almost seems that suddenly there were other people rising in the nation who were expounding scripture in perhaps a slightly deeper way and a slightly stronger way and maybe a slightly more Calvinistic way. And then, then came, rightly or wrongly, I'm just commenting historically, then came all that went with, you may call the charismatic movement. And how interesting, in the early days of the charismatic movement, which is a million miles from what it finished up as, most of the early charismatic leaders were Plymouth Brethren. People like Arthur Wallace. Interesting reading his book, you know, came from Captain Reginald Wallace. But yeah, these were brethren who said, it's become a rut. Where's the freedom that we once knew about, that we were taught about as children? And you see these frustrated point of brethren saying, nah, we're dying, we've got to push out. And, and partly out of that came the charismatic movement. And then came other people who were passionate about evangelism. And suddenly the brethren found themselves undone 
by other people. So you could be committed to scripture, but without being a brethren. You could be reformed. Or maybe sitting under people like Lloyd Jones or Paul Connor or Campbell Morgan. Or, or you could be a bit more open to the Holy Spirit and the Pentecostal movement was coming into being and then slightly the charismatic movement. And in terms of evangelism, you mean, yeah, suddenly there were people outside the brethren who were passionate about reaching souls who were not brethren. And so I would say that initially the brethren have been undone by other denominations. Thomas Bernardo said, it's an interesting quote, brethrenism is a good street through which to pass, but a bad street in which to live. <laughs> and it's amazing the number of people who start off in the brethren and walk down the street called brethrenism and then go and buy a house somewhere else. And I'm guilty of that myself. <coughs> so, first of all, they've been undone by other denominations. Secondly, they were undone by legalism. Sadly, they finished up the executors of universal exclusion. Where do I start? Oh, I could give you lots of interesting stories. Let me just limit myself to a few. The Brethren Assembly in which I was brought up had a large bookcase that was uh, full of Christian literature. So on the Lord's Day, the bookcase was opened. So you could look at all these books by good brethren, writers, and so on. And you could take one up, but you couldn't pay for it, brother. No, you pay for it on Tuesday. So no money was ever sort of seen passing hands on a Sunday for a Christian book. That was always kind of passed on in an envelope on a Tuesday to the man in charge of the book cupboard. Well, hang on a minute. I mean, this is, this is somewhat hypocritical to me, really. I mean, you still got the product. But no, they kind of they tied themselves. But the one thing that you could buy on the Lord's Day was life drops. Life drops were a fluid in a small bottle that uh, if you'd had flu, you put in hot water a few life drops and it blew the flu away. It nearly <laughs> killed you. <laughs> but because the brother in the, in, the, in the assemblies in East Lancashire marketed life drops well, this is, this is good for the body, this is medicinal. It would be right that we're healed so we can come to the meetings. You can imagine, I'm one of six children, you can imagine us four boys having a great sort of time with these life drops. If, well, we need these after the meeting. <laughs> we live quite close to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal. And... Uh, during, during the summer we had no Sunday school in an afternoon so, so during the month of August we'd sometimes go for a walk down the canal bank we knew how to live in those days we used to, it was kind of how many shopping trolleys can we count but, uh, <laughs> they've since cleaned up the Leeds Liverpool Canal uh, and, and we knew at the far end about three miles from where we lived there lived one of the elders from one of the really tight, tight assemblies so we were walking along this canal bank on a Sunday afternoon when suddenly my father in the distance spotted a fire. And the fire was on the canal bank at the back end of this elder's house. But it was the Lord's Day. So my father marched off at quite a speed and obviously the elder saw my father. Well, you know, all these kids. You know, is this, who's this? Is this Jacob? No, it's Jim Earnshaw. So all these children kind of come. My father said, stop here. Stand behind the hedge. 
So we all stood behind the hedge because this man had run back into the house because he's an elder lighting a fire on the Lord's day. We had no problems with that. But he was playing the hypocrite. So we're all stood there by this hedge for five minutes while he thought we'd all walk past. And then he came out. And I was oh, nice to see you, Norman. Having a fire? <laughs> My father wasn't liber- kind of uh, tight, but it's just playing silly games. Playing silly games. Uh, I, I, I go running every morning uh, in the village. And uh, there's about four of the people in the village who run. They're all ladies, and sometimes I don't see them. Then sometimes I may see them and I just go, Hi, as I'm running past. There is an exclusive Plymouth Brethren sister who runs. You say, I don't know, she's an exclusive. Well, she has, she has a running uh, kit on, but she runs with a skirt on. <laughs> but the skirt is ankle length. And I kind of look at this poor dab. And I say to her, morning, but she won't speak to me because I'm her brother. So the others go, hello. So I don't even know who these women are. I just go, hello, just kind of politely. So she, and I, I can see her house. I know she's an exclusive house. So she comes out of the house and she's running like this. <laughs> I'm thinking, what on earth is this in the name of the gospel? And uh, Campbell Morgan in his early days was part of the brethren. He kind of... Uh, I'm a brethren, am I not? And then he finished up with the Congregationalists, of course, and went to Westminster uh, Chapel. On one occasion, Calvin Morgan was speaking at a brethren conference with uh, Sir Robert Anderson, the head of the CID, and uh, they wanted a photograph at the end, so they had all the elders, and, and there's Campbell Morgan, and there's Sir Robert Anderson. Campbell Morgan was quite a flamboyant man, in the sense he always had a rose in his lapel. When the photograph was taken, okay, the brethren thought that was rather showy. So they said to the photographer, do you mind removing the rose from the photograph? It gives the wrong impression. What impression is that? That's legalism, isn't it? And also, when I was growing up in the assemblies, I never courted anyone in the assemblies. No one wanted me anyway, but... uh, (laughs) But the first question that was always asked was, is she in the meeting not is she the Lord's is she in the meeting is she one of us and you know legalism like that kills people the early pioneers of brethrenism were not legalistic but they got narrower and narrower and narrower it killed them, it throttled them thirdly they majored on minors don't want to sound critical, but that's what the Pharisees did. They were concerned about the tithing of mint and cumin, but righteousness passed them by. A brethren missionary was on the field in China. He's called Mr. John Anderson, and he came back in 1921. While he was on the field, he changed his views on the second coming. He believed that the church would go through the tribulation, and then Christ would come just so happens as he was speaking in one of his reports he happened to mention about a slight change in emphasis on the second coming and when the meeting was over he was called before the eldership the eldership of the assembly that sent him onto the mission field to say that we are severing your membership and we are severing your support because of heresy if you said to a card carrying Plymouth brethren George Muller 
Benjamin Wills Newton, Anthony Norris Groves, George Wigram, and a whole host of the pioneers of brethrenism thought that the any moment now rapture was some Scottish nonsense. They would throw you out. But it's the truth. That's what those men said. We don't want this stuff. It's what we don't find in scripture. And it's surprising how we can get focused on just our own personal hobby horse and interpret the whole of scripture by just how we see things. We will not agree on the second coming. None of us will. But all of us should be able to say, we believe he is coming. In fact, there's many things of which I'm not all that sure we're fully conversant the more we look at scripture. But sad to say they made the minors the majors and the majors the minors. That's why in the end Sir Robert Anderson left them. He said they had failed to provide intelligent ministry at their meetings. And so in the end you finish up preaching your own party line. They loved the pomegranates and the bells. I remember as a boy being taken to hear C.W. Slemming. And the highlight was Saturday evening when during the singing of a hymn and a long, long, long prayer he went out into the vestry and came out donned as the high priest. You could see the ladies coiling with delight as he then took off the garments one by one explaining the significance in relation to Christ. Wow, that was awesome. I saw that. Well, I do believe that Christ is found in the tabernacle and the temple. But you know, when I was growing up, no one ever said to me in a brethren assembly, David, these are the temptations you'll face. This is how you cope with them. And as a young man, you need to deal with this and this and this and this. But I tell you this, at 18 or 19, I was an expert on Leviticus. And on the temple. And on the second coming. There are two other reasons why I believe that they've become unstuck, and that is, first of all, human nature change and decay in all around I see that includes denominations <coughs> I come to realise that whatever man builds will eventually fall apart and while a move of the spirit is of God we then try and capture it in a denomination and then that starts to fall apart and you know there's enough flesh in the history of brethrenism that would make a Muslim say it's time you covered up it's time you covered up and so because of the flesh coming into brethrenism it killed it, it exploded and by the way that's why Methodism is dying and that's why Congregationalism is dying and that's why Anglicanism is dying and that's why one day the FIC will die because they're all man-made organisations the last thing I'm saying is that God is not in any of these things but the Lord Jesus said I will build my church. And the church is not the Brethren Church, the Baptist Church, the Church of England, the FIC, the Congregations, the Pentecostals. It is the Church of Jesus Christ. And so denominations will come and go. But I do know this, that in the church that God is building, there could well be Pentecostal stems, and a few Brethren stems, and a few Baptist stems. So it's not a matter of building the denomination. That's why I don't understand when people talk about the Baptist family. What's the Baptist family? And, and the Church of England family. You know, I've just been reading the biography of a man who's a, 
who was a bishop in the Church of England, he said, I'm an evangelical big A Anglican. What's that? But that's how we are. That's, that's the kind of flesh. So whenever I think of the alphabet, big A, big bishop. <laughs> My dear friends, when we get to glory, the Lord will not ask us to see our denominational card. Do you love me? Do you believe I died for you? Did that change your life? And so human nature has got right in to brethrenism and has blown it apart. What I found is this. When a thing is a move of God, it rises very quickly and falls very quickly. And that's my final point. I honestly believe that brethrenism was a move of the Holy Spirit and that God had his hand upon it. It had to be. Why all these people from a wide variety of backgrounds were dissatisfied with dead Christianity in all the state kind of denominations. They came out, they got together, they worked hard, as if God says, that's now finished. We always think that something that God starts has to carry on forever. And it doesn't. One of the hardest things sometimes to do is to say, enough is enough, it stopped. Yet what I find interesting is this, for all their faults and their foibles and their fightings, amazingly, somewhere in all of that, God was working. And that gives me great encouragement. So I believe personally, and I just stand responsible for this comment, I believe that brethrenism is a spent force. And it's in the dying throes in this country. But I say, thank God for the Plymouth Brethren because this country would have been a darker place without them. And I say, Lord, if that has come to an end, oh, that you would raise up something else in our country where people are committed to the word of God, who are passionate about evangelism, and who are open for you to break in to see people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. If you can do it through the organization I'm in, so be it, Lord. But if it needs something else, we're ready. That, my dear friends, is Plymouth Brethrenism. My engine's running. I'm off. <laughs> Let's have a word of it.